Welcome to Latin American Intersections, where we explore the intersection of business, geopolitics, and social impact in the Latin American and Caribbean region. Our team is here to bring you the insights you need on current events from leaders and experts in the public, private, academic, and civic sectors. Latin American Intersections is presented by Ozilold Group, a consultancy focused on stakeholder relations and alternative risk reduction, building collaborations across sectors and industries to improve outcomes for clients and communities. Please keep in mind that the opinions, ideas, and information discussed on this podcast are those of the individual host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the official stances of organizations they are affiliated with. Be sure to follow at LATAM Podcast on your social media, share an episode or two with your friends, and send us your questions about the region. And don't forget to rate us on any of your favorite podcast apps. Hey everyone, welcome to Latin American Intersections. Today I have a very special guest. James Ellsmore is an award-winning entrepreneur and writer who communicates the importance of sustainability and renewable energy in a very unique way. Uh, Ellsmore does basically uh, raising awareness of uh, solar and renewables by installing solar systems on government buildings and also the homes of world leaders um and without me launching into it too much james could you tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got into this yeah hi thanks so much for having me on excited to uh chat with you a bit more about this so my interest really is islands which sounds super broad but Um, let me tell you kind of the sustainability, the sustainable development of islands um, in the Caribbean, in the Pacific, and in, in Scotland um, is a, such a fascinating, fascinating area. In a, in a small island community, you can really see the overlap of all of these different sustainability topics um, that we're talking about. Uh, agriculture, water, food, uh, electricity, transport, all these things, of course, interlink. And I think in an, in an island community, you have a huge opportunity to move the needle really quickly and, and see how, um, how, how sustainable development is, is really happening. Um, there's also this element of, of climate change for, for um, island communities are really at the forefront of the impacts of Uh, climate change and so things like renewable energy are important both from a emissions reduction standpoint but even more so as an adaptation uh, to the impact of climate change so so my work I mean I, I guess to, to summarize I really have three different hats on um, the first as you mentioned is as director of solar head estate we're a nonprofit working mostly in the Caribbean and the Pacific Islands um, as the name might suggest we are working with governments to install uh, solar panels on prominent government buildings. And this is really about the communications element, the idea of getting solar in front of everyone in a high profile building where people can really um, see it uh, on, a, on a daily basis. Um, 
the second hat is, is as you mentioned, I do writing. I'm a contributor to uh, Forbes, um, and I do kind of freelance writing for for other other publications as as they come up again, obviously in this sustainable energy and, and development sector. Um, and then the third would be uh, the uh, my my own consultancy. So I have a consultancy, Island Innovation, um, that, that that again works on kind of all of the above. Uh, topics uh, as and when needed and what I'm particularly interested is building the bridges metaphorical bridges uh, between islands to show um, how they can kind of learn from each other and look at the the best practices but also uh, provide really tangible examples and models for larger areas um, mainland areas to to implement ideas. I think they can be amazing areas to, to test projects and really demonstrate uh, the future in things like absolutely. Uh, now, James, you mentioned Forbes and you write for Forbes. And in 2017, you were named one of their 30 under 30 for energy. What was it that led to that particular um, recognition? Well, that recognition specifically came from the Solar Head Estate projects. Uh, that we've done. So for Solar Head Estate, we're uh, obviously a non-profit organization, um, technically headquartered in California, although we've got kind of volunteers and and, 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 and people working for us uh, around the world. Um, and we've done three projects with the governments of the Maldives, St. Lucia and Jamaica. So three islands governments, um, all of which are very keen to move towards renewable energy. And so these these projects, this, this recognition, um, which you know, I was very, very pleased and honored to to have, came from the, the results of, of that work that, that, that we've done. Um, and now with Solar Head Estate, actually, we have an agreement with the Pacific Island Development Forum and another with the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States. So two kind of small I guess you can compare like smaller versions of the European Union for their for their regions and over the next three years we'll be working with both of these organizations to do solar projects with um, all of their all of their members totaling around 25 uh, island nations in how, the Pacific and the Caribbean. James real quick how fast would you say these island nations are beginning to adopt renewable technology and has it increased uh, ever since some of our recent uh, spate of hurricanes, such as Hurricane Maria? Um, I would say it was existing before Hurricane Maria um, across the region. I think you, you have kind of different, different you, you saw different speeds with the independent countries, um, the, the Caribbean countries, and kind of the, the territories like, like Puerto Rico weren't necessarily moving at the, at the same speed. I think in the Puerto Rican case, Hurricane Maria obviously um, showed how necessary renewable energy was. But, but more broadly, and so the acronym is SIDS, Small Island Developing States, for the countries around the world that kind of share these qualities. There's, there's around 50 different SIDS, depending on how exactly you count them. Um, and in general, they all have extremely expensive electricity. So Puerto Ricans pay twice as much as an average uh, an American in, in the States uh, pays for the electricity. Um, Jamaicans pay three times more than, um, than, than the average American pays. Um, and some island states have even higher costs. And so these are, these are places, I mean, Puerto Rico is half, uh, the average Puerto Rican and half the income of the poorest uh, of the 50 states, Mississippi. So there's already a big wealth gap 
and yet the electricity cost is twice as high. And so it puts a huge pressure on. And so from the economics are very different. When you look at the economics in, in island communities, whether Puerto Rico, Jamaica, Fiji, um, the cost of generation is so high that from a purely economic perspective, renewable energy makes sense. Uh, then you add the environmental perspectives as well, the adaptation arguments and uh, Puerto Rico, uh, and, uh, sorry, and, uh, you add in the the other elements and um the transition to renewable energy just uh, makes makes absolute sense and so you're seeing various islands around the world uh really taking up the mantle with these big goals 50 percent 100 percent obviously puerto rico now has a goal of 100 percent um in, in a couple of decades but even more importantly 40 percent renewable energy by 2025 which is much more tangible and so uh, there's a lot of similar goals around the Caribbean and, and James, around the world. Tell me something. How, what has the energy mix been like with renewables on these islands and more specifically in the Caribbean uh, up to this point? And what are the trends? Um, is everybody trying to go solar? Are we able to leverage any type of other um, renewable, uh, whether it's, uh, um, excuse me, hydro or geothermal or any of these other, can we add any of this other stuff to the mix or uh, which way is it going? Yeah, so I'll try and give you a generic answer, but with the caveat that obviously every island has its own own issues and, and own peculiarities and changes. I mean, there are, there are various different dynamics ranging from the geography, the climate, um, the size, uh, the, the you know, the size of the population. I mean, uh, Puerto Rico is a, is about around 3.5 million people. There are some states in the Caribbean that are you know less than 100,000. Some in the Pacific that are 10,000, like Tuvalu. So there's there's a huge variety of these different islands. But the the general trend um, until really until 2010, the vast majority of these islands were running on 100% um, diesel or fuel oil. So they were importing. Um, huge amounts of, of fuel oil uh, to, gen to run generators to generate electricity. Um, the one exception in the Caribbean is Trinidad and Tobago, which has its own uh, oil uh, resources, but that's, that's the exception. All others um, are relying on expensive imports. And obviously you have expensive shipping costs and you don't have the economies of scale to make the big purchases. And the reason they're, dep they're depending on this type of generation is again, because there isn't the economies of scale to run big coal plants, nuclear, um, the other cheap hydro, the other ways that, that kind of larger areas might rely on for, for cheap electricity. So you do occasionally, I mean, Puerto Rico has a coal plant that provides around 17% of the electricity on the island, although that's going to be rapidly phased out in the coming years. Um, some islands have hydro for a, for a backup, which obviously is a, is a huge benefit. But then you have an island like Aruba, which is essentially a desert and completely flat. Well, clearly there's no opportunity for, for hydro there. So the general trend has been, has been solar um, across the Caribbean. Solar is, is um, reasonably reliable, reasonably, reasonably predictable, and, um, uh, has, and, and very cheap now. And the, the, the big value with solar is that it can be done on a small scale. Um, when you're when you're doing uh, building a wind farm, for example, you don't get the economies of scale unless you go big. Whereas solar is is modular, and so it doesn't matter whether you're doing um, a small house with a few panels or a huge solar farm. 
Um, of course, there are some cost saved by um, by scaling up, but they're not as big as as for other technologies. And so that's the big advantage that solar has uh, for for the Caribbean region. Um, Let me ask you this. When you're talking about these economies of scale when it comes to energy and specifically solar, is there a sweet spot, especially in island communities, where it's better to have um, solar energy provided all the way down to the individual household level? Or is there a, you know, or at this, you know, some type of a micro grid for a small community or town? or uh, division is there basically is there a sweet spot in terms of of scaling um solar energy to to these communities yeah i mean that that is the the great debate now um the future of what the utility really looks like um and you're going to get different answers depending on on who you ask so i'll try and give you a bit of a balanced picture of of the different views from from the utilities perspective they love solar if it's reducing their costs provided that right. they own the solar farm so a lot of the utilities in the caribbean have really pushed for big solar farms so they can say that they're doing the green thing but they own the entire the entire assets and are producing it and in that sense it's no different from an economic perspective than any other well let me interject with uh, with a risk perspective um, and, and i'm just saying this from my point of view um you know, the risk management perspective yeah. is this is that's a very centralized system. And so when you're talking about resistance to things like, say, hurricanes um, on a, you know, on scale, it would make more sense to have that much more decentralized, I guess, from my perspective, where either you have microgrids mm-hmm. for small communities and or um, individual households have, are able to produce at least some of their own power with these solar panels. Um, that way, if you know, if totally and, you know house a b and c lose their panels uh during a storm that the very least the the rest of the microgrid or uh you know several other individual households don't lose that power but when you have this this um this uh almost 100 percent um population dependency on um any grid I think that that increases a certain level of risk, especially when you're talking about um, disaster risk. But that's my opinion, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. No, I mean, I, I, I would completely agree. And what I was getting at was kind of from, from the utilities perspective, from, a, from an economic perspective. But then when, when you bring in the, the hurricanes, that, that creates a different issue. I mean, the, the challenge with this transition for me, and I still, you know, I'm still on the fence about this, is as we move towards a more decentralized system, we're going to have to find a new utility model. And it's really easy to, um, to criticize, you know, I think for most people, for most islands in the Caribbean, a major hobby, and this definitely applies to Puerto Rico, a major hobby is criticizing the utility. Um, and and, and that, that's fair enough. You know, when you're paying for expensive electricity that is unreliable, of course you're going to um, criticize the utility. Now, my issue is that for the future of any island, um, you need a healthy electricity utility that is reliable and providing people with affordable ele- electricity, which is easier, easier said than done. The way that we manage this transition from centralized to decentralized is really the challenge because what we have seen in other places, and this actually applies where, 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 where I live in, in, in England, um, as much as it has to, to various islands, um, has been that when there is a net metering policy, say, put in, 
um, very wealthy people jump to uh, go towards renewable energy and install it. And that's all well and good. So you, you get a, a large number of wealthier people who are installing renewables, have that on their homes, and are therefore reducing their own electricity costs, reducing the amount that they're buying from the grid. Now, the problem there is that the utilities' fixed costs are going to remain the same. And um, therefore, the, 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 the logical conclusion of that is that the prices get pushed up mm. for everyone else, which pushes, pushes even more people to buy solar. And so this is called utility death, death spiral. The idea that more and more people go solar until you get to the point that the utility collapses. Now, I think it's a void. I, I don't think utility death spiral is the inevitable, inevitable consequence of decentralization, but that's what a lot of utilities would have you believe. And that's what a lot of utilities use to um, kind of stop decentralized solar being installed. But my, well, my thought is that the big challenge is going to be, how do we find a, a balance there? Because what we don't want to do is mean that the installation of solar is regressive and therefore pushes up the prices for the poorest people who are never going to be able to buy those systems. Now, there are opportunities there. For example, it could be through financing systems. We could uh, create a system that means that everyone, no matter what their, their background, um, can afford to get financing for solar, which kind of decreases some of those issues. But whatever route, route we go down, whether it's trying to keep the status quo, which I don't believe is functional in the future, or trying to make a radical change, there are going to be pain points. And so we have to find a way to deal with those in a sensible way that is not regressive and um, both protects the environment, promotes solar, but also protects those people who can't necessarily afford Well, and investment. this is the best time to do it too. I mean, the price point for photovoltaic has dropped exponentially over what, the last decade or so? Yeah. So, and, and here's yeah, the other exactly. thing, James. I, I don't have a specific question on this, but how do you see the integration of solar and other renewables with um, with industry, you know, and, and more specifically uh, things like food security and agriculture on these islands. I mean, we're talking about uh, island systems. So we're talking about a very contained system, something that uh, practically needs a circular economy. And you see that in places like Puerto Rico, where they have pretty much banned plastic bags, you have to pay an additional um, amount to even get a plastic bag, and they're they're sturdy. You can use them over and over and over again. Um, you have multiple organizations working to really reduce waste um, and integrate uh, this circular economy with energy, with um, recycling, with upcycling. Um, do you have any thoughts on that that you can share? Hmm. Yeah, I think um, obviously these things have got to be in integrated and we have to think about them holistically. The good news with the plastic bag ban is that it's now being, it's now happening across the region. In fact, most Caribbean countries are now looking at some form of the other, either just banning directly plastic bags or at least um, imposing some kind of tariff or tax on them, like you mentioned in, in Puerto Rico. So that's great. The issue, of course, with plastic bags is it's actually a small amount of plastic we use. I mean, I'm all for, you know, reducing the amount of plastic bags that we're using, but there is a wider systemic issue with plastic that, that isn't really solved by banning plastic bags on, on its own. Um, in, in terms of the kind of the agriculture element as well, I mean, what I do think there's got to be a movement back towards 
um, more self-sufficiency on the islands from agriculture. Uh, the Caribbean has a rapidly increasing uh, heart disease rate, a rapidly increasing diabetes rate. Um, in the Pacific Islands, nine of the 10 most obese countries in the world are in the Pacific. So, and there's a reason for that, that these small islands um, rely on imported food and imported tinned food that is heavy in salt um, or lots of fried food. So it's, it's part, part of it is cultural in terms of the foods that are being promoted as kind of the, 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 the prominent ones or the, the, the best ones. But also there's an element of, of, of the, the local food in many of right. the islands is just not there anymore. And some of the bigger islands, Puerto Rico or Jamaica, are a bit better off because they have more space and they have more economies of scale and, and the option to grow stuff. But this is particularly acute in the smallest islands that don't have much of a local agriculture. And, and, and they did, you know, a few decades ago, these were entirely dependent on, on their agriculture. Well, that is really even where you so, have um, um, a, a healthy agriculture sector, I mean, in, in many cases, you're still talking about uh, a food system that provides maybe 10% of, of what is consumed on, on these islands. I mean, uh, I can't remember exactly what it is for Puerto Rico, but it's a relatively small percentage. And that went down um substantially since the hurricane you know as they were trying to replace crops um now there is a mm -hmm. movement to you know just as there's the movement to sort of create this uh um renewable and independent uh energy sector um to also create a you know an island food system in conjunction with that that is a lot more self-sustaining, right? But I think it still hovers somewhere around 10%, I want to say. Don't quote me on that. I know I'm, obviously this is going out to the public, but mm -hmm. I know it's a relatively uh, <laughs> small amount. No, that's, that's probably right. I mean, that sounds, that sounds right compared to other islands in the region. You know, it's a, a relatively small amount that is actually produced and consumed locally. Yeah, just and share. now um, what you were mentioning about, just going back for just a second to... Um, I know we're here to talk more about renewable energy, but going back to what you said about, um, you know, the rates of diabetes and, and heart disease, um, could part of that be sort of this reliance on, on imports from, you know, especially when it comes to uh, Commonwealth or territories of, of other countries, for instance, you know, Puerto Rico with the U.S., um, multiple islands with, with Great Britain and uh, other islands with, um, with Northern Europe. Is there like a sort of heavy dependency on or even a, a, a dependency by policy on foodstuffs from those uh, particular countries that sort of goes into this equation? Um, I think that that applies more to the U.S. territories than it does to the European territories. Um, and I say that because, I mean, talk, obviously I'm, I'm British and talk about the British, British territories. They have a lot more internal autonomy to set kind of their rules on everything from immigration to uh, standards. And, and, and so obviously there is some, some pressure from, from London, but they have a lot more autonomy. Puerto Rico, on the other hand, is um, kind of beholden to a lot of standards set in, in DC. I mean, uh, again, not, not so relevant, but immigration would be one where Puerto Rico doesn't have any, have, have much control over its, its, its immigration. And so I'm sure that applies in, in, in the food sector as well. So I don't actually know to what extent it, it, it applies to the territories, because I would actually, if you look at the independent countries in the region, um, 
it, it, it applies uh, in, in those countries just as much. I mean, Puerto Rico is a special circumstance. The other point that I just wanted to make is, um, and a great example of how um, a country's uh, food economy has been destroyed is Haiti. Haiti uh, used to produce way more food than it does now. And they used to have, for example, a, a really strong rice industry where they would grow rice locally. That was destroyed in part because of people trying to do the right thing and the U.S. flying in huge uh, volumes of American rice and giving it away. And so it destroyed the country's ability locally to, um, to produce rice because it put people who were the business people locally out, out of business completely. And I realize that Haiti is a very special case when we're talking about, about the Caribbean, but I think it's a great example of where, where good intentions in, in this case have, have gone bad. And now, unfortunately, they, particularly since the earthquake, they rely even more, and, and that's, they continue Absolutely. to, on imported chicken, importing now, rice. James, there's um, actually a reason I kind of went down this rabbit hole a little bit with you, and that is to, to highlight sort of these outside policies, these extraterritorial policies that sort of affect these island nations. Mm. So what I, I guess my next question would be, are there extraterritorial extraterritorial policies um you know and especially say in the case of puerto rico that could affect um this march towards renewable energy or uh, renewable energy at all um so in the case of puerto rico i mean there is considerable local autonomy over over some of these rules as we've seen with the ps 1121 that was able to pass by the the, the local legislature um I'm, I'm not the right person. I'm sure you could, you have other people that could talk to you in more detail about at what level DC can step in and kind of uh, oversight. But I know, I know that DC does have considerable oversight over over the laws in, in Puerto Rico. As I said, for the British territories, for the Dutch territories, um, there's considerably more local autonomy and they have the freedom to, to kind of um, do that. And, and there's also a big difference in, uh, in the different territories um, in, in terms of the level of, of investment. So, so this is kind of a tangent, but I think it's an important point to make. It's, it, it is important to talk about the, the damage um, the, of the kind of t- territorial or even colonial status that Puerto Rico has and the kind of the downsides of that. But it's also worth remembering that the reason that Puerto Rico, there's suddenly a rush to install renewable energy in Puerto Rico is the benefit that it gets from that, from that US status. And a lot of the independent territories, independent islands, I mean, um, like Jamaica, like St. Lucia in the Caribbean, uh, would love the amount of investment that is flowing into into Puerto Rico. And investors feel confident in making an investment in Puerto Rico because of its U.S. territorial status. Now, I'm sure that won't go, me saying that, won't go down with, uh, won't go down well with some people in Puerto Rico who, um, you know, are, are, are more uh, independence-minded. Uh, uh, but it is worth remembering that these, a lot of the independent countries in the Caribbean, the reason, one of the biggest factors stopping them move towards renewable is just a lack of investment for the capital that they need to, to so make the con- transition. Uh, so many investors from other nations aren't going to necessarily go along with the currency or disaster risk that's involved there because they don't necessarily have that extraterritorial support in many cases. Um, There's the... There's the currency risk, and then there's also the legal. I think the biggest one is the legal framework as well. The fact that ultimately in Puerto Rico, your high court is, um, you know, in the United States, and so you have more control that and more trust in um, 
in, in, in the laws of the United States if you're an American. Right, you know that once that, that contract is made, it's binding, essentially. Um, yeah, and this applies to the Dutch territories as well. So you look at places like Aruba and Curaçao, um, there is a huge amount of money available in those islands from Dutch investors that feel more confident that ultimately that you know the, there is some level of Dutch oversight there um, than in neighboring islands that are in, independent. So now, um, speaking more to investment, what would be like, say, um, an off-the-cuff SWOT analysis from you for uh, the average investor looking at or investment group looking at getting into renewables in the Caribbean? Like, what's the upside to this? I mean, we're even, uh, you know, even as this is a, an industry that's going to grow, we're still talking about relatively um, small islands and territories. So there's only, you know, so much of a market, uh, you know, there's only so much market share within the region. So what is the, you know, what are some of the, 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 the major upsides to getting into uh, renewables investment? Totally. I mean, the Caribbean is definitely not for, for everyone. There has been this sudden rush of people, investors coming down to Puerto Rico, but you've got to remember Puerto Rico is, is only three and a half million people. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a small state. There's not, there's not room for everyone. Um, and the, the thing with the Caribbean is, take the whole, in, the entire Caribbean region, you know, even if you include uh, Haiti, Cuba, Dominican Republic, and you still have around half as many people as, as the whole of Mexico. But the difficulty with the Caribbean is you're spread across 30, maybe 40 jurisdictions. And so if you as a business person want to go into the Caribbean, you have to make, you have market entry costs for every market that you go into, Puerto Rico, St. Martin, Trinidad, Guyana, Belize, they're all going to have different um, different local rules and registrations. I mean, Belize is 300,000 people. Uh, um, Aruba is, uh, I think, uh, 120,000 people or something. Uh, Trinidad's bigger. It's like 1.1 million. But still, Mexico is, is what, 120, 150 million in the whole country? Um, and so there's, there's, there's a big question there. And, and okay, are those costs of going into each of these tiny markets um, going to be prohibitive. Now, the advantage, of course, is that your electricity costs are so high in the Caribbean region. Belize borders Mexico, and I say Belize because it's considered a Caribbean country because it <laughs> speaks English. And yes, it's only 300,000 people, um, but the cost of electricity there is double that of Mexico just next door. Um, and, and, and in the islands, it's, it's, it's even higher. So yes, there are barriers to entry in these countries, but then the, the rewards are potentially so much higher because of these higher electricity Right, costs. smaller scales, but definitely a, um, a lucrative market. The, um, the other question I had uh, as far as the, uh, the, the, the types of renewables on these islands, uh, kind of backtracking a little bit, we've been talking a lot about solar yep. and photovoltaic. So when we talk about, say, wind, uh, energy, what are some of the, the risks involved with that, especially considering hurricanes? I mean, um, you know, for instance, if you drive down the, the south side of Puerto Rico, you get uh, you go through Ponce and Santa Isabel. I mean, you can see, you know, multiple wind farms along yeah. the way and uh, they seem to be doing quite well um, in those territories. But is there some 
substantial risk with um, with windmills and hurricane risk? Oh, so there are there are multiple wind farms on the south coast of Puerto Rico. Yes. Okay, I didn't I didn't know there were um, many wind farms in, in Puerto well, Rico. Actually, um, no, maybe this is a good time. Wind is ahead, not. I was going to say maybe this is a good time to to uh, put in your shameless plug about uh, the conference that you're going to be having in Puerto Rico um, and what you've done on other islands up to this point. Totally. Okay. I'll we'll just just go back to the question um, first. Give me a second. So uh, uh, to be honest, like wind, my, my focus is, has really been been solar. There are wind farms around the Caribbean. Um, obviously Puerto Rico, uh, there's a big wind farm in Jamaica, um, Curacao and Aruba both have wind farms, although notably those two islands are both out of the hurricane zone, so there's a bit more um, uh, scope there. I've, I've heard of project, I've heard of wind farms that can be kind of taken down and battened down with an on, uh, oncoming uh, hurricane, but to be honest, I, I don't know enough. I mean, you could say the same about a solar farm as well. At, at the end of the day, uh, the eye of a hurricane hits you, you haven't got much hope, so the idea of decent, the, the idea of the benefit of renewable energy is the decentralization uh, element, but I don't really know, know enough to, to answer your question um, about about oh, wind. No farms. problem. That's something that uh, maybe we can look into a little bit later, and it's something I'm trying to explore as well and get uh, you know kind of put my finger on um, as to you know what's what's the benefit versus risk on those. Um, but yeah. uh, going back to your shameless plug, since we're kind of running low on time here. What yes. is it that you are doing in Puerto Rico and why is it exciting? So next week, wow, it's soon. Uh, next week, the 30th of April is the Solar Power Puerto Rico conference. Um, there have been several conferences in Puerto Rico over the last year, but I'm particularly excited uh, about this one because it's got a big uh, industry presence, people coming from around the Caribbean, obviously from the island and, and from the States. On the day before, so Monday the 29th of April, uh, I'm holding an event, a charge. Uh, so it's a small workshop uh, before the conference. We only have uh, 20 tickets. We've almost sold out, actually. Um, we have uh, a group of politicians, uh, representatives from big NGOs like the Rocky Mountain Institute and the Clinton Foundation, um, as well as some of the, the leaders in the industry uh, joining us. And we're really going to spend that, that day before the conference starts working on solutions to try and build this bridge between government and industry and also um, international and, um, and, and the, the local industry in Puerto Rico. As I said, personally, my experience is not in Puerto Rico. It's more around the wider region. But I think there's huge opportunities for Puerto Rico to look to the rest of the Caribbean instead of just looking north of the United States. Um, and, and kind of learn from the opportunities and also share its own expertise that's starting to build up in this field of renewables. So, um, yeah, I'd love for any of you, your listeners uh, can feel free to get in touch with me um, to uh, find out more about getting a ticket for this, this workshop, Monday, 29th of April. I think uh, I'm really excited. Um, uh, and where about, can they go to find these tickets? So, attend. Um, is there also a link through your personal website? Uh, I can, can you include a link in the show I notes or something? I certainly intend to, yes. <laughs> uh, I'll go ahead and include a yeah, couple of links the, here to the, both your personal okay. website, um, you know, for our listeners, um, you know, in the, uh, 
in the podcast notes, you will find a link to James's website as well as to the event in Puerto Rico, um, which is an awesome place. I've been spending a little time there uh, working and uh, exploring, um, uh, mostly in the um, uh, mostly mostly topics in the agriculture uh, industry. But uh, of course, that intersects a lot, you know, with energy and uh, how we can sort of leverage that a little better for these island systems. Um, James, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, up to five minutes worth. <laughs> wow, time, time, time flies, doesn't it? Um, no, I think I covered my main points. I mean, just to, to reiterate how uh, the Caribbean market is exciting for many reasons. It's not for everyone. Um, but I think the, the most important thing here is that the, the impact that renewable energy can have on the quality of life for people living in, in these islands in terms of reducing their electricity costs, improving its reliability, and also working as much as possible to avoid something happening like the blackouts um, in Puerto Rico again. And I think with decentralized um, renewable energy done in a, in a thoughtful way, that is really the uh, direction we now, should be going James, in. Okay, here's, a, here's sort of a curveball question. So traditionally, when it comes to energy, um, and especially renewable energy, we're talking about um, uh, governments and civic organizations, NGOs, um, and, and individuals sort of implementing some sort of energy mix in the past, right? Now, what, you know, what kind of investors, I mean, we, we've mentioned it before, you know, what the, you know, why investors should be interested in this. What, you know, what, what do you think an investor that would be interested in a private investor or a private investment group that would be interested in um, renewables in the Caribbean would look like? I I am not an investment uh, an investment expert, so I think I'm going to decline to answer no that, that question. <laughs> well, um... <laughs> sorry, I just don't have enough expertise to go not into a problem. detail on that. And anything else you want to share? Are we good? Yeah, I think I think that's it. Um, and uh, you know, any of your listeners, yep, have any any more questions? Okay. Yes, indeed. Again, uh, I'll go ahead and put some contact information in the notes as well as the, uh, the link for the uh, Solar Energy Conference. And uh, thank you for listening to Latin American Intersections. I've been here speaking about renewable energy with James Ellsmore, entrepreneur and communicator of uh, solar energy in the Caribbean and other islands. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Latin American Intersections. If you enjoy our podcast or find it insightful, please be sure to share with your friends and colleagues. Hasta la próxima. See you next time. big thank you to Kasim Sultan of Sad Boy Music, who is working diligently to improve our audio as we develop our production techniques. Sad Boy Music offers competitive rates for recording, editing, mixing, mastering, music production, video editing, and motion graphic design. 
You can follow Sad Boy Music on social media at 5ADB0iMusic.